Hello, and welcome to another episode of our 20-Minute Playbook series, where each week I sit down with an elite performer, from iconic founders to world-renowned investors and best-selling authors, to dive into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies that got them to the top of their field, all in less than 20 minutes. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by Steve Vassallo. Steve has been a general partner at Foundation Capital for the last 15 years. At Foundation, he's led the firm's investments in Stripe, Cerebras, Sunrun, Loft Orbital, Solana, and many other other incredible firms. Steve is also the author of The Way to Design, which is a guide to how companies of all sizes should approach design. The book is a compendium of interviews with more than 50 designers, design scholars, and tech founders who have gotten design right from day one. Steve began his career at IDEO, where he worked closely with IDEO's founder, David Kelly, to research, design, and deliver innovative products and services across industries. Because of Steve's early experiences at IDEO, he's drawn to product-centric founders and has a wonderful knack for bringing design and engineering together to create incredible products. In this episode, we cover why Steve has been fascinated with the wicked problems that exist in crypto and why he thinks we're still in the earliest innings there. He talks about his work with the Earth Species Project, whose goal is to decode non-human language in mammals of all sizes, from whales to monkeys. He talks about how he combines insatiable curiosity and a deep love of building hard things in his investing work. He shares his advice for founders and investors, and he shares his favorite books, including why he loves Thinking Fast and Slow and Poor Charlie's Almanac. You can find the show notes and text transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 123. That's one, two, three. You can also follow Steve on Twitter at Vassallo, V-A-S-S-A-L-L-O, and you can learn more about Foundation Capital at foundationcapital.com. With that, let's dive into Steve Vassallo's playbook. Steve, welcome back to Outlier Academy, this time for 20 Minute Playbook. Um, Really excited to have you back on. Thanks, Daniel. So great to be here. So I always start by just having you give a quick sketch of your background for anyone that's listening for the first time, hearing your name for the first time that doesn't know who you are. Can you just quickly share kind of a quick sketch of your background and then talk a little bit about what you do today at Foundation Capital? Yeah, so I am a general partner at Foundation Capital. We're a a 27-year-old venture firm based in Palo Alto and San Francisco with partners all over the world. I started my career as a product designer, I'm trained as a as an electromechanical engineer and, and roboticist, but started my career at a company called IDEO, designing products for a, a broad array of, of clients and applications across everything from medical devices to furniture and uh, sunglasses, phones for Cisco, a whole, whole wide range of things. Then was an entrepreneur and worked as a head of engineering at two startups, one company, which we took public in 1999, and is still a public company today, uh, which invented uh, much of the area of consumer level haptics or force feedback technology. And then uh, started a company in collaboration with uh, Gina Bianchini and Mark Andreessen back in 2004. I was their sort of first head of product and engineering and then found my way to foundation capital as an entrepreneur in residence on the path to starting my next company and got tricked into uh, joining as an investor in uh, in 2007. And at foundation, I have invested across everything we do. So I, I work um, in enterprise, uh, mostly in some areas related to uh, infrastructure, uh, data infrastructure, analytics, cloud computing, and our fintech practice. I've done some neat projects and investments in companies like Sunrun and Stripe. Um, and then I've uh, been working in and around our crypto practice uh, really since 2017 and been very active there, particularly recent. Yeah. And have just a couple successful investments among, <laughs> among them, Solana, Algorand, uh, many, many others. I, I always start by asking if you can share a recent fascination. What have you been thinking about recently and what can't you stop thinking about? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, in in crypto land, and we were talking about this in in your full episode. You know, I mentioned I I, I just love uh, focusing on what I think about as wicked problems, and and crypto has a lot of these. I mean, whether it's uh, elliptical curve cryptography or zero knowledge proofs, uh, and so those have been. Uh, those have been colonizing my mind for some time, and we talked about those a little bit. I think um, so. Maybe I'll I'll think about something different from that. And 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 fascination for me is actually a pretty big word. Like it's it's a high bar to be fascinated. And so I I think that probably uh, the project I would probably highlight more than any other one relates to actually a nonprofit um, that I helped back that's focused on using very large language models uh, to translate non-human languages. Uh, so um, it's kind of a crazy idea. Uh, in fact, the idea sprang from this Nature article that I read, I don't know, five or six years ago. It might, might have been longer than that. And um, it turned me on to gelato monkeys. Uh, these, are, these are these monkeys that live in the Simeon Mountains of Ethiopia. I mean, who doesn't love monkeys? But these are really special monkeys in that gelato monkeys uh, have the most complex vocalizations of all primates. And in fact, the researchers that chose these monkeys um, hypothesized that um, their wobbles, as they're called, um, these sort of rhythmic sounds, um, are actually the precursors to syllables in human speech. And uh, anyway, so I was like reading this article, went for a walk from with my friend Azar Askin, who's this you know crazy mathematician, dark matter physicist friend, and um, he also loved gelato monkeys. I think he read the same uh, Nature article, and and that uh, that walk turned into a dinner, and that dinner turned into me writing the first check uh, into this project, which is now called the Earth species project, um, which is, um, as I mentioned, trying to sort of decode animal communications and translate them. And, and uh, you know, in many ways, it's a sort of cool, very cool technical project, but it actually has a sort of a more meaningful um, connection to sort of this belief that like, you know, I think if we actually knew that uh, those monkeys or the crows or the lowland gorillas or the humpback whales were actually talking to each other, we'd probably respect them more. We'd probably want to conserve them more and we'd probably um, behave a little differently. And so anyway, that's probably a true fascination of mine uh, beyond some of the day job stuff that I do in crypto or enterprise infrastructure. That is fascinating. And I mean, it definitely meets my bar. I can't wait to look at it. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, it sounds absolutely fascinating. One of the questions I always ask is around your superpowers. So clearly, you know, you've been an investor now for 15 plus years at foundation. You invest across enterprise in, in fintech and insuretech, and then also in Web3. So, so pretty broad, I think most people would say. What do you think of as your superpowers? And I'm sure that's a similarly high bar for a superpower. But what I mean by that is, you know, everybody on a team shows up with these different innate capabilities, you know, these, just the way they're wired, the way that they see the world, what is unique about the way you see the world? And what do you think of as some of your superpowers when it comes to investing? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, I think when I kind of peel it all back for me uh, and why I get excited about a project or a founder gets excited about working with me, I think it really is a combination of insatiable curiosity and a deep love of building hard things that matter, that that make a difference. And I think that really is a function of having having thrown myself into, you know, hard problems uh, early in my career, whether it was robotics or electromechanical engineering or applied physics, and then designing kind of, you know, deeply technical products. But I think then the next linkage, um, which I think matters to founders, is I'm I'm not happy or satisfied 
with something that's just a hard problem, a kind of a cool R&D product, um, you've got to reduce it to solving a real need um, and translating into consumer or business value. And so I think it's that appreciating how hard it is to build something deeply technical, but then really thirsting for what's the use case? How does this thing land with consumers? How does it become sort of a beloved product or service? So I think it's that it's that sort of range. Yeah. It's how do you actually make an impact? How do you actually move the needle? Because, you know, I think you find that as a venture investor, uh, you know, over time, you see a lot of wonderful, amazing, fascinating ideas or fascinating problems or fascinating solutions. But, uh, you know, I think if you were to ask that tough question of which of these could truly move the needle, could truly impact the world, you know, it is a relatively small number of them. You know, related to that, and this is a difficult question. So, you know, it, it, I'm ad- going to admit that before asking it. Um, but one of the things I'm always curious about is, you know, your philosophy when it comes to investing. And, you know, that uh, is probably difficult to distill. But if you had to try to distill down your philosophy into just a couple of words, and I might just be reiterating what you just said, what what would be that philosophy of, of what you invest in and why? We often distill it down to a single word, um, and that is conviction. And I think if I had to maybe take six more words, if that's okay, it would be go deep, go early, and go big. And uh, the deep is focus around these practice areas uh, where we uh, spike really hard, enterprise, fintech, crypto, go early. I mean, two-thirds of the time, we were the first uh, institutional investor. 80% of the time, these companies are pre-revenue. And then go big um, is, you know, when you've when you've uh, worked f- with a startup from, you know, from its earliest days, you have a really good sense of uh, what the opportunity is. And when you've got a great company like a Solana or a Cerebras or you know, one of our kind of very strong enterprise companies, Eightfold, you want to continue backing those companies with every financing that they've got. And so I think it really is go deep, go deep, go early, go big. Yeah. So well said. I want to ask kind of your advice for two different subsets. One is for founders and one's for investors. And the way I'm going to kind of going to ask this is, you know, so you clearly, you're an early stage investor, but you've worked with companies over very long time horizons. So you've worked with, you know, founders at very different stages, you know, it truly spans a full spectrum. So the question I guess I would ask is if you had to think about the piece of advice that you gave to founders most often, or that you feel like is you most need to give, and it could be at any stage, stage agnostic, could be at a particular stage, what would that be? Is there a piece of advice you give most often to founders? Oh boy. Um, It's hard to generalize. uh, And maybe this piece, uh, this piece attempts to kind of uh, take things I learned in my operating career as well as in my investing career. But I, I, I would say it's, it's the sense that you can always find a way to build something you've already sold, but you can't always sell something you've already built. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I remember when David Kelly would go close a new client at IDO you know, they'd be like, well, we want this and this crazy other thing. And, and it's got to do, you know, these eight things and cost less than this much and, and be done in six weeks. And he'd say, we can make that happen. <laughs> and of course, he'd come back and we'd all be like, what did you commit to? Um, but when I see the opposite, when I see people build something uh, that they think um, is going to transform the world and then they got to like uh, sell this piece of technology or, 
or research project and they haven't done the hard work of figuring out whether anyone wants it, I, I see more failures in that direction. So I'd say, yeah, you can always build something you've already sold, but you can't always sell something you've already built. Yeah. So similarly, you know, kind of on the flip side of the coin for investors, you know, and the way I'm going to ask this question, just to not, you know, ask the same question around philosophy of investing is, you know, we, you have new partners that are joining your firm all the time. We just had a long conversation around, uh, you know, kind of reinventing foundation capital over the last 10, 15 years. And, and part of that's been bringing in new, incredibly talented, you know, uh, partners and investors that see the world differently. When you bring on a new team member, you know, as an investor, is there any advice that you give them? And what advice would you give to someone that's just starting, you know, say next week at Foundation Capital, if you had a new team member joining? Yeah, this piece of advice I actually absorbed from one of my uh, mentors here at Foundation, Bill, who's one of the um, one of the co-founders of the firm. He didn't call it this. I came up with the name for it later, but I call it uh, uh, Bill's Enlightened Procrastination. And what I mean by this is, uh, as product people in particular, uh, and certainly former operators, I think we are rewarded for being quick to make decisions, to to judge, uh, to sort of d- decide sort of whether something works or doesn't, and, th- and that you know that serves many positive you know processes in in a in a startup environment. But I think in in the venture ecosystem, oftentimes um, it's in your best interest to not snap to a to a judgment, particularly to the negative uh, side of the spectrum, because uh, things change. Um, Founders find their way through the fog. Um, You know, the market shifts in a little way. And so it really, I think, does pay you to to be a little bit more um, flexible in your thinking. And, you know, for those of us who are kind of in the J end of the Myers-Briggs spectrum, I have to kind of force myself to not rush to the J but be a little bit more P perceiving. Um, and uh, that's advice. And then I think the only other piece um, that I think is true in our business is, is you know, don't, don't fear the partner that makes a bad investment decision. In other words, a decision that doesn't work out, but, but you really need to fear the partner that keeps you from investing in the ones that turn out to be huge winners. Uh, because I think in, you know, we all have, have seen this in the startup ecosystem, like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that don't work out, but the ones that do are the ones that turn into the 100x or 1,000x winners. And so it really hurts to have one of those you know, 1,000x winners in your not portfolio. And so I think, yeah, you'll make mistakes. Uh, don't worry about the mistakes. Just keep looking for uh, those extraordinary uh, founders who are going to create you know, generationally important companies. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. I would love to talk about books for a second. You know, you have written your own book, The Way to Design. Uh, you talked about before, you know, you write a regular Forbes column. Um, I imagine you probably read plenty of books. Uh, when it comes to either design, investing, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, books for founders, what books do you find yourself either one kind of going back to thinking about referring back to or two giving uh, to people or recommending to people? Yeah, I'd say giving book, books is is a love language of mine. Um, t-shirts and books. Um, I think the two books that I've given away more than any other are uh, one I think about as sort of um, it's how people work, uh, and that is uh, Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. And the second one is I think how businesses work, and that's uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Um, and I think they both um, they both have really interesting uh, lessons for for founders, uh, for investors. Um, what I love about Kahneman's work is just, boy, it just, it forces you to really be much more aware of your, of your biases, of all the ways in which um, 
your mind, particularly the fast part of your mind, uh, can get you into trouble and and trying to sort of let system two um, do its work and 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 be um, more thoughtful and uh, more engaged and more intentional. And then poor Charlie's Almanac is just such a treasure for me. It's this giant blue kind of almost like case study book. Exactly. But there are some vignettes in that. And there, there are many of his sort of speeches, uh, Charlie Munger's speeches, that he then deconstructs and sort of talks through. And in some cases, sort of is like, ah, this wasn't as good as it could have been, or, or nobody understood what I meant here. Um, but there's just so many um, gems of business wisdom around uh, distribution, around, I mean, he's also understands human behavior around sort of the concept of not just thinking forwards, but thinking backwards uh, and this concept of inversion um, and really understanding an idea from every angle uh, to me is such, you know, is such a gift of that book. So those are probably the two that I've given away more than, more than any other, including to my, to my kids. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine them receiving this 400 page poor Charlie's almanac that they're like, dad, I'm never going to read this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, two closing questions. The first one that I wanted to ask was um, one that I actually had intended to ask in the last interview, and it's around investing. And and one of the one of you know, there's many very tricky, difficult, nuanced problems in venture that are kind of like thought problems or how you approach it. Cause it's very difficult. You know, as you said before, I think even just in the little insight you shared of, you know, in venture, it's easy to dismiss. So you want to, you know, kind of resist that ability of snapping to a negative judgment too soon and, and allow yourself to explore it a little bit more deeply related to that. Maybe one of the questions I want to ask is as venture, I feel like one of the other things that's difficult is to determine or sort out the signal from the noise. And what I mean by that is either one, what things to follow or what things, what things that maybe seem small today that you think are going to get much bigger. And then similarly to that signal from noise, when it comes to meeting companies, meeting founders, trying to just sort out the fluff from the heart of, of what a company's really about. Difficult question. Do you have any advice or any just being, you know, introspective about that, how you think about separating signal from noise? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good one. And I'd say, you know, what I've learned in our, in our business is, um, you know, it's it, beauty is in the eye of the beholder uh, for so much of uh, investing in early stage, particularly the earliest stages as we do. And, you know, when you're getting to a decision, there could be, you know, 52 reasons to do it, 48 not, and someone else would have it sort of flipped around. And so I do think um, ultimately, you know, as we were talking about earlier, sort of that sort of conviction mindset, when you've gone deep, you have a better sense as to what you're looking for, but then the humility to kind of be willing to kind of learn new things and adapt as as you uh, meet with founders and as they sort of paint the canvas of what they're trying to build. I do think in one area in particular, and I think this has come up um, perhaps more than others and, and maybe is helpful to your audience, but I think you know the emphasis on people matters to me more than more than perhaps anything else um and part of it is i think that you know extraordinary founders are what uh, are the sort of the basis the substrate of building extraordinary uh companies but i've also decided at this point in my career 15 years in i i just want to work with um exceptional people and i think you know if you kind of look back um crypto was sort of you know felt Fell, fell prey to this in the early days where there were a lot of speculators or a lot of mercenaries looking to make a quick buck, um, you know, willing to do anything, including 
you know, defrauding retail investors to do so. And I mean, if the, if the last couple of months have taught us anything, these folks are still in our midst. And I think, you know, we've been fortunate to not have been fooled by any of them. But when I think uh, back on sort of why that is and what we're looking for in crypto founders is, you know, we really, really like these deeply technical founders with a very strong reputation to uphold. Um, they're not here to do one thing. They are thinking about the full arc of, of their career. In many cases, they're thinking 20 years out. I remember Lynn Jurich, founder of Sunrun, you know, she would talk on the earnings calls as a public company. It's the company where, you know, I, I invested them when they were four people. Uh, and hearing her on earnings calls talk about, you know, the kind of the 20-year focal length of what they were building was just so satisfying. So I think this sort of emphasis on why you're here, what you're building, um, what fills your tank uh, as a founder, I think matters a lot to us. And we do everything we can to learn about that before we invest um, so that we have a real sense of conviction around those founders to live through you know, the hard times and, um, and be, you know, still be, be excited to build something of import. Last question. If you could go back to the start of your career and whisper some advice in your ear, uh, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, we talked about distribution. Um, you know, I, I think this is less about product person or investor, more just the sort of human advice is really take stock at what you're granting your attention to. Um, you know, I have to remind myself every time I open my inbox that like, this is really somebody else's to-do list, not mine. <laughs> and um, I. Uh, have to choose what really matters to me. And so, you know, I think the the temptation to sort of react to everything that gets sent to you, every entreaty to take a meeting, perhaps that might be interesting, but probably isn't a great use of time. And instead, flip it around and think about what is it that you are most curious about? What are the things that you want to learn more about? Where do you want to get smart and begin to be able to kind of give yourself a space to do that? And and to not kind of, you know, be a victim to your calendar, but rather kind of take control of it, I think is probably the thing that I've learned more than anything over the last handful of years. And that I, I think, you know, matters at every point in your career. No, it's so well said. It's almost like you need to invest in the frame that you bring to be able to wait and sort opportunities and things that come across your desk or your email inbox so that you make sure they actually line up with where you want to go and where you want to spend your time. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for coming back on, Steve. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thanks, Daniel. It's so great to, to join you for this and excited by what you're building at Outlier Academy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes and text transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 123. That's one, two, three. For more for Steve Vassallo, listen to episode 120, where he joins me on our Outlier Investor Series to break down how he helped reinvent the 27-year-old venture capital firm Foundation Capital. Foundation Capital was founded in 1995, 27 years ago by Bill Elmore, Catherine Gold, and Jim Anderson. One of Foundation's early claims to fame was that it was one of the first investors in Netflix. If you've read The Power Law, which is an incredible historical overview of venture capital by Sebastian Malaby, you'll know that Silicon Valley is littered with venture capital firms whose fates have risen and fallen over the years. Very few venture firms survive a single decade, let alone multiple decades. And those that do survive, 
survive for decades have to reinvent themselves time and time again. Which is exactly why I wanted to interview Steve Vassallo. Over the last 15 years, he's helped reinvent foundation capital, turning around lagging performance, investing in entirely new types of businesses and companies, and in the process, he's helped usher in an incredible new era at foundation capital. That episode, episode 120, is our definitive guide to reinventing a venture capital firm. To listen to that, visit outlieracademy.com slash 120. It's 120. You can find videos of all of our interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews as well as our favorite short clips from every single episode. So make sure to subscribe. We post new videos and clips every single week. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode next Friday.